Oh boy. Oh yeah. That's right. Today we get to start Romans 13. And I can't wait for the emails, for the comments, for everything that people might have in expressing their opinions on what I'm about to say. And if you're upset, please shoot me an email. Send me a message. Something. Anything. Lord knows. There are a lot of people that are going to be very upset at what I got to say. But that is okay. Because everybody gets upset when you read the Bible and you apply it according to the plain meaning of the text. When you do not filter it through the lens of either tradition or excessive human reason. If you have a Bible handy, I would love it if you would turn to Romans chapter 13. Now, up until this point, we've been reading from Romans 12, which talks about the Christian life, particularly throughout most of the chapter, how we treat one another as fellow Christians. But now, in chapter 13, St. Paul is going to look outward, outside of the church. Who is it that we interact with? And he did a little bit at the end of Romans chapter 12 with the idea that if you have an enemy, don't get vengeance when they do something messed up. Instead, pray for them, and if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Uh, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. St. Paul makes it very clear that we should not be overcome by evil, but we overcome evil with good. And of course, in typical St. Paul fashion, he is going to immediately apply this to something that ticks everybody off. And by all means, in America today, it takes everybody off to hear this as well. To the point where, knowing that there are synagogues where, as they're reading through the book of Isaiah, they just skip the entire 53rd chapter, I'm sure there are churches out there and various groups of Christian that, reading through Romans, just kind of skip over the first seven verses here. It scandalizes people. And why? Well, let's read it. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And my goodness, everybody hearing these verses has something in mind. They have uh, objections, they have questions, they have whataboutism already there tattooed in their brain as they hear it. This is Anger Arc 2. 
Because the moment you take this passage at face value, everybody gets angry. But why is that? Well, let's look at this first verse again. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. What do we mean when we say be subject to the governing authorities? Well, that word, be subject, is a conjugation of the word hupotasso. Now, where else do we see that in Scripture? Let's turn over real quick to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 24. As the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Same word, hupotasso, to stand under, to obey, to be subject to. So the dynamic is very similar. God places one individual as an authority over others, and the others are expected to obey them. If you want your wife to submit to you, it is the same as a government that wants you to submit to that government. This is a good thing. This is by design. God instituted it. Now, instantaneously, though, the feminist has the same objections as the anti-government type. Instantly. The feminist says, what if the husband is abusive? The rebel says, what if the government is an abusive tyrant? It is the same argumentation applied to two different institutions, one of government and one of marriage. Now, we here in Christian conservative land will say to the feminist, well, a wife must obey her husband. She is to submit. This is a good thing. This is by design. But then immediately our taxes get raised or our government does something stupid and messed up or sinful and we go, ah, now time for me to be a revolutionary and fight the power, man. That's, that's incredibly hypocritical of us to expect our wives to submit to us, but to say that we have the right to rebel against what God has instituted regarding the state. Now, to God, all things on the earthly material plane are about hierarchy and authority. He establishes husbands to be an authority over their wives. He establishes the state to be an authority over its subjects. Now, that, of course, leads to the calumnious slander that Christians approve of wife-beating and of marital rape. It leads to the slander that Christians approve of doormat theology, where we never stand up for ourselves or say anything in our own behalf or do anything for our own good. We just expect people to do terrible things and uh, rejoice over it, I guess. And then we get power and then, you know, kind of do the same thing ourselves. That's the slander that comes out of misreading these passages or dictating them according to our objections. Much in the same way that the early Calvinists slandered Lutherans claiming that we would rend Christ's flesh with our teeth where you take something the Bible says and then you just misrepresent it in the ugliest way possible in order to deny it. It's a very subtle and effective emotional way of warring against the word. 
but the word still says what it says and we must agree with it. So if somebody says to you, oh, so you must approve of the state mutilating your children. You must approve of kidnapping. And if a government official comes into your house to rape your wife and slaughter you after forcing you to watch the act, you have to just sit down and go, yes, sir, thank you, may I have another? That is how they will honestly present this. They will throw example after example in your face of governmental abuse. Much in the same way, whenever confronted with Ephesians chapter 5, a feminist individual will throw example after example of terrible abuse that men have inflicted on their wives. And you are supposed to, in their mind, go, Oh wow, that's so bad. Time to throw the Bible in the trash and let you do what you want. Okay. <laughs> no. No, we're not going to do that. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. You are to submit to the government. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. That includes wicked rulers. St. Paul wrote this when Nero was in charge in Rome, burning Christians to punish them for arson that he committed. St. Paul writes this when an evil tyrant is in charge, and he says, God instituted this. Now, why? He says, rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. If you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Now, human beings are imperfect. Governments are always going to try to punish the bad and reward the good. But they are populated by human beings who are going to screw this up. They are going to get it wrong and they will misinterpret what is good and what is bad. Expect them to mess up. It is a human institution. Yes, God made the institution. Yes, he puts people in authority, whether they are Nero or whether they are Charlemagne the Great. And they are charged by God with fulfilling the first use of the law. The first use of God's law is a curb against evil. Now, if we look at that with the central thesis of the law, do good to get good, and if you do bad, heaven help you, because you're going to get a lot of bad. That is what the first use of the law expresses on the civic level. Here is how you get people to stop doing bad stuff, by and large, and start doing good stuff, by and large. You tell everybody in your population, do good to get good. If you do bad, we are going to punish you. Now, is anybody able to fully and perfectly fulfill the law in its second use? The law as a mirror that tells you whether or not you're a sinner. Ha ha ha, no, lex semper accusat, you are always a failure. Therefore, every single government, which is completely comprised of evil, wicked, poor, miserable sinners like you and me, they are also going to screw this up. 
there has never been a perfect human government. Ever. They are always going to fail you and they will never, ever, ever fully represent your interests. Somebody might object, hey look, what about this government in history? They were better than the others. Look at how great, I don't know, Ferdinand and Isabella were. Or, oh, look at this government that I liked. Okay, yes, you are correct. Some people are better than others at obeying God's law in their lives, the Ten Commandments. And the same goes for some governments being better than others in executing their directive from God. Make sure that the law of the Lord is enforced. Do good to get good, do bad and you get punished, particularly with the sword. When St. Paul says he does not bear the sword in vain, keep in mind that a sword is a tool used for killing and maiming and harming. The authority is charged by God with executing the first use of the law by executing people. That's part of its job. So strictly speaking, the Bible, even in the New Testament era, still puts its stamp of approval and even exhorts people to engage in capital punishment. And if a Christian is put in a position of authority with the charge of enacting justice, God has put a sword in his hand and says, yes, I want you to use this to execute the first use of the law. If a Christian ruler engages in capital punishment against those who have committed heinous crimes or whatever, he is not sinning. So on the one hand, we have those rebels who want to kill people and break stuff because they don't like the government. And on the other hand, we have those people who are such pacifists that they believe that crime should be legal and the government should not enforce anything. The Bible is refuting both notions here, as well as that of anarchism, which says there should be no rulers whatsoever, and there should be some miraculously maintained state of statelessness in which each individual does whatever the heck they want. The Bible here, in these seven verses, is saying, no, worldly authority, whether it is from righteous or wicked rulers, is a good thing that God instituted and you should conduct yourself with good works so that you do not have to fear the sword that God has put in the ruler's hands. To underline this, to put a fine point on it, St. Paul writes here that whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment. He repeats himself as well in verse 5, therefore one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. You want a clean conscience and you do not want to fear God's wrath. Yes, God will be angry with you and he will punish you if you decide to be a rebel, even if the ruler is a beer wolf, a werewolf, as Luther put it. And this includes taxes, even if the taxes are used for bad things. When St. Paul wrote this, the taxes that Roman Christians had to pay were going to objectively immoral things, because Nero was an immoral man. This isn't rocket science. Do what the government says, by and large. 
But there are many, many, many objections, as I said. See, the rebel thinker, the guy who believes that if the government is doing bad, he should be able to rebel, he's a feminist. He really is a feminist, full stop. He has the same language, the same ideology, the same way of thinking as a feminist. A feminist says a wife should be able to leave her husband and or take control of the marriage if he is not doing a good job. And in fact, the husband shouldn't really have authority over the wife. So uh, she has every right to leave or take over if she doesn't like how things are going. And so, too, does the rebel say that, well, the government shouldn't really have authority over what I say and do. The government shouldn't do anything like that. And in fact, you know what, if it is misusing its authority, I should be able to take over or replace it or leave. That's the same logic. If you are the guy that decides rebellion against bad states is a perfectly fine proposition, you're a feminist. Now, of course, both feminists and rebels have the same good point, the same good objection that they want to raise when it comes to tyrannical authorities. They will say, what if your government commands you to do something unchristian? What if your husband is a non-believer who tells you you are not allowed to go to church? And of course, the answer to that is yes, this is the one case in which civil disobedience, not rebellion, but civil disobedience is commanded. If we turn here to Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 27, it says, When they had brought them, they set them before the council. These are the apostles here, especially St. Peter. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, that is, the name of Jesus. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Okay. God gave governmental authority to this Jewish council. They bring the apostles in front and say, hey, quit preaching in the name of Jesus. Now, according to Romans 13, the slanderer says, St. Peter should have said, oh yeah, I'll, I'll betray Jesus just for you. But St. Peter says, instead, we must obey God rather than men. If your government or in marriage, if your husband commands you to do something that is contrary to the commands of Holy Scripture, then yes, you engage in civil disobedience. You say, I'm going to obey God rather than you here. I am still going to be a model citizen. I am still going to pay my taxes, even if my taxes are going to something bad. In fact, that tells us quite plainly that if your taxes go to something bad, it's not your fault. If you pay your taxes and they go to something bad, you are not participating in that sin. The Bible has declared it. But nonetheless, you are still to be a model citizen with a clean conscience that does engage in civil disobedience if the state commands sin. 
Our Lord Jesus told St. Peter and the rest of the apostles, go into every nation, baptizing and making them disciples and teaching them everything that I have commanded you. Okay, the Sanhedrin says, don't do that. Jesus takes precedence. But at the same time, if your government tells you to stop preaching about Jesus, yes, you keep preaching about Jesus. You still have to obey the speed limit. You still have to pay your taxes. You still have to make sure not to engage in fraud. If the government tells you not to illegally download music, you don't go, <laughs> this government's evil. I'm going to illegally download music. Now, they say I wouldn't download a car, but I can get an MP3 whenever I want. That is your exception. Civil disobedience when they tell you you can't be a Christian or do Christian things in accordance with God's commandments. And if they are going to persecute you for it, as they have, you flee. So if you have an abusive husband that tells you not to go to church, or if he's out there just beating you constantly, you flee. There is no sin there. Same as if the government is persecuting you, you flee. King David is the example of how you do this. When King Saul was trying over and over and over again to murder King David, he fled. He was doing his absolute darndest to be a model citizen and servant of King Saul, even when King Saul was trying to kill him. And when it became unavoidable, King David fled. That should be how you see your civil government when they go bad. That's what we do, and God rewards that. The Christians, under Roman persecution, fled to the catacombs. Then eventually, God gave control over the entirety of the Roman Empire to Christians. We had 1,700 years of Christendom thanks to Christians being model citizens and fleeing when necessary. They did not, by and large, engage in some sort of evil, bloody massacre rebellion, as we see with, say, the Jewish wars or the Simon Bar Kokhba revolt. Those were squished and their people sent into diaspora. Christians, on the other hand, were obedient to the governing authorities as much as they could without violating their conscience, and bam, suddenly now they are in control and Rome becomes a Christian empire. This is objectively good. This is how God operates in your life. Don't expect perfection from your government. It's probably going to be evil, given the tack of history and how most governments have been populated by unbelievers. However, nonetheless, being a good citizen means you're going to take over. And I expect this to happen in, say, China. I expect this to happen in Japan. Japan had 350 years under the Tokugawa shogunate where they persecuted the ever-living dickens out of Christians. It was terrible and Christians were in hiding. So I expect Japan at some point to become a Christian country. It's going to be glorious. <laughs> the same thing as Chairman Mao persecuting Christians and forcing the church underground. I betcha anything, given the rate of growth and conversion in China... That, yes, at one point this is going to be a Christian country, provided Christ does not return first for Judgment Day. Now, somebody might bring up something. It's called the Magdeburg Confession. 
The Magdeburg Confession was a Lutheran attempt at justifying rebellion against tyrants through what you might call the Lesser Magistrate Doctrine. Now, this is not the same as the justification for rebellion that the Founding Fathers of America gave. It's not. They had this idea that, well, there's a social contract, and when that social contract is violated, people have the right to rebel. Not the same as the Magdeburg Confession. The Magdeburg Confession says God instituted one prince over a region, and when the people above him are wicked or evil, he can fight to defend his people and basically rebel against his higher authorities because God gave him charge over the bigger guy. So this would be a German prince of Saxony rebelling against the Holy Roman Emperor or something like that. Is that justified? Well, it's kind of a gray area. Because on the one hand, yes, indeed, God gave the sword and the first use of the law to that lesser magistrate. It's his job to take care of his people, and if the guys up above him are preventing him from doing his job, he is in something of a position to say, I must obey God rather than man. If the United States government, in theory, was being oppressive, maybe the governor of Florida could rebel, or something like that. But there's a problem with the doctrine of the lesser magistrate that needs to be winnowed out a little bit. There are governments where everybody is considered a lesser magistrate. In a liberal democracy, if you can vote, you are a lesser magistrate, according to the definition presented in the Magdeburg Confession. Do you have any right whatsoever to just take up arms against the government? According to a hard and hackneyed interpretation of the Magdeburg Confession, the answer would be yes. What's the problem with that? Well, voting is war by other means. And that means that every voter has this right to wield authority over the sword through his vote. He just has a teeny tiny incy weensy little piece of that sword. So if he says, I have this authority as a lesser magistrate or voter in the United States or the UK or whatever, and I can't do my job of faithfully executing the law, if you're going to say that, you're saying ultimately that the voter has to execute the laws when the liberal democratic separation of powers dictates that that's actually the executive branch that is charged with doing that. Nonetheless, you're still a lesser magistrate, and you would still, in theory, have the right to rebel. But according to what standard? That's what I want to know. If we leave it up to a whole bunch of individuals who are all going to disagree as to the nature of the injustice perpetrated by the larger authorities, what is to prevent them from killing each other? Haven't we kind of legalized murder if we take this to its uh, insensible, absurd, logical conclusion? <laughs> I hate my mayor. He raised taxes too much. We can't abide by this. Let me grab my AK-47 and start a movement against him. And then the other guy goes, 
Wait, no, you are the town dog catcher, and you have not been doing a good job. You've been filling our humane society with pit bulls that have been biting children. You are oppressing us. You are doing this to us. So I see your AK-47 launched up at the mayor, and now I am going to shoot you. And then somebody else goes, ah, but I know how you voted. You voted last election for somebody that I don't like that is clearly an evil tyrant. So now it is time for you to die. And now suddenly we're all rebelling against each other because we all believe that we have the right to murder. If you are going to accept the doctrine of the lesser magistrate, it has to be with somebody who actually is charged, full stop, explicitly in their job description, with the power of the sword, with enforcing the first use of the law. It is not up to the individual Christian or a magistrate that is not given the power of the sword to do these sorts of things. And bear in mind that if your lesser magistrate is actually an evil man and a tyrant, are you commanded to follow him in his rebellion, or do you default to the higher authority that is over him? I'm not convinced that the Magdeburg Confession answers that question adequately. At the end of the day, the point still stands. Romans 13, 1 through 7 says very clearly, we obey the governing authorities to the best of our ability and we do our best to be model citizens that pay their taxes or else we incur the wrath of God. And the witness of scripture is, if you have a tyrant, a beer wolf in charge who demands that you violate your faith or deny Christ or stop obeying God, if he commands sin, then the answer is civil disobedience. And if it becomes a terror unto you, you flee or go into hiding. That's it. If you disagree, based on uh, all sorts of exceptions and qualifications and historical precedents, I'm sorry, but you're probably a feminist, and maybe you should re-examine that. Uh, next week, we're going to be talking about love and honor, things that, well, feminism pretty much denies by its character. It'll be fun. But until then, please direct all of your angry emails and comments to me. I would love to hear them so that we can actually get a good faith, honest dialogue out of it. But until then, catch y'all next week. Amen and amen.